When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Hi everyone, this is Pranay Bonagiri, your Inside the Board's host, here today to bring you the nephrology episode of the Step 1 Study Smarter series. To help discuss these important topics, I have Dr. Pavit Anamaraju on the podcast today to review some Step 1 questions. So Dr. Anamaraju is a board-certified nephrologist. He attended Kasturba Medical College in Manipal, India. After completing a one-year internship at Kasturba Hospital, Dr. Anamaraju moved to the United States and completed an internal medicine residency at the Memorial Hospital of Rhode Island at Brown University in 2011. Afterwards, he went across the country to complete a nephrology fellowship at Loma Linda University in the VA Medical Center in 2013. Since then, he has moved back across the country and now currently works as a consultant nephrologist at Johnson Memorial Hospital in Abington, Virginia. Here, he also serves as the medical director for the nephrology service line. Additionally, he works as a consultant for the National Kidney Foundation and is participating in a Virginia Department of Health research study. Dr. Anamaraju is also a faculty member of the IM and FM residency programs at Johnson Memorial. And he also serves as an adjunct assistant professor of nephrology for Loma Linda University and Edward Via College of Osteopathic Medicine. Finally, Dr. Anamaraju serves as a reviewer for several medical journals and a question writer for several organizations, including the American Board of Internal Medicine. So I tried to hit the major points, Dr. Anamaraju. Anything else you'd like me to add? That was pretty good, Pranay. Thank you so much. Yeah, you've done a lot throughout your career, it seems like. So if you don't have anything else to add, then we can just dive right into these questions. So question number one, a four-year-old male patient presents to the clinic with his mother with a four-day history of periorbital and lower extremity edema. This is accompanied by foamy urine. His blood pressure is 90 over 60 millimeters of mercury, a pulse of 100 beats per minute, respirations of 20 per minute, and a temperature of 98.0 degrees Fahrenheit. His examination shows bilateral lower extremity edema, and a urinalysis shows 4-plus positive protein. Laboratory studies confirm normal complement levels in hypoalbuminemia. Which of the following would definitively diagnose this patient? 
Is it A, light microscopy? B, electron microscopy? C, immunofluorescence? Or D, serum studies? All right. So I'll just summarize the question. So we have a four-year-old boy. He's a toddler. And he is presenting with foamy urine. Whenever we see foamy urine in the question stem, that typically means it's protein, proteinuria. And his blood pressure is 90 over 60, which is normal. And he has lower extremity edema and he has four plus protein. So four plus, whenever we say four plus, is usually a semi-quantitative way of expressing proteinuria, you know. And it ranges from, you know, all the way from zero to four plus. And typically when we are saying three plus or four plus, that's usually consistent with nephrotic range proteinuria, which is quantified as around 3.5 grams in 24 hours. And then the question stem gives some clues that the patient has normal complements. It means it's not a complement mediated disease. You know, some of the diseases are complement mediated, typically like, you know, lupus and other diseases, which obviously he's saying uh, the question says that the complements are normal, and then the patient has low albumin. So this this kind of picture, the findings are consistent with a nephrotic syndrome-like picture. And typically in such an age group uh, where you give a toddler, the most common form of nephrotic syndrome is uh, minimal change disease. Now, the question does not ask the diagnosis. It actually says which of the following tests will definitely diagnose, right? So you have light microscopy, you have electron microscopy, you have immunofluorescence, and you have serum studies. Now, typically, like when we think of minimal change disease, in minimal change, the unique thing is that the structure of the glomerulus and light microscopy is actually very well preserved. So when we look at the glomerulus under the microscope, light microscope, it looks normal. And the only way to diagnose minimal change is through looking at the ultrastructure of the glomerulus. And that is usually done by electron microscopy. So I would guess that the electron microscopy is probably the answer. Yeah, spot on. So yes, B, electron microscopy is the answer. Just to bring up some other important points about minimal change disease. uh, Sometimes I felt like step one questions like to specifically ask what it looked like under the electron microscope. Would you be able to tell us that, Dr. Anamaraju? Yeah, well, in electron microscope, you know, it gives you uh, a zoom out view of the basement membrane and the endothelium as well as the epithelium. And particularly for minimal change disease, the classic hallmark finding is the effacement of the podocytes. So, you know, that's, I think I would say for the students who are taking the board exam, that's the buzzword they should remember. It's a complete effacement of the podocytes in minimal change disease. Great. Thanks for telling us that. Also, for minimal change disease, are there any specific drugs or medical conditions like students should be aware of when they're, you know, either looking at board style questions with minimal change disease or seeing patients with this disease as well? Yes, I want to mention one thing, you know, minimal change can also be seen sometimes in adults as well. It's not specific, it's common in pediatrics, but you can see that in adults. And there are various associations, I should say, that are linked to minimal change disease. You know, it can be seen sometimes in particularly certain drugs, most commonly uh, such as NSAIDs, you know, even including lithium and 
you know, another drug that comes to my mind is pamidronate. Pamidronate is also linked to FSGS, remember that. And typically, you know, there are certain infections and, and sometimes even certain cancers, especially the lymphomas and the leukemias, they can also be associated with that. Great. And after you diagnose minimal change disease, what is the general treatment that medical students should know? Well, uh, the minimal change typically is very responsive to steroids. So, you know, the first line of treatment from, in terms of the drugs is the steroid therapy. Great. So that's all I had about minimal change disease. So moving on to question number two, we have a 55-year-old man who presents with nausea and bilateral flank pain for the past few months. He has no history of weight loss or trauma. There is a family history of sudden death in his uncle at the age of 55. His blood pressure is 165 over 100 millimeters mercury. He has a temperature of 37 degrees Celsius, a pulse of 84, and respirations of 14. His abdominal examination reveals a palpable liver and palpable masses in the bilateral flanks. Urinalysis reveals microscopic hematuria. Serum creatinine is 2.5 milligrams per deciliter, and his blood urea nitrogen is 52 milligrams per deciliter. Abdominal ultrasound reveals multiple renal cysts in both kidneys. Which of the following is the greatest concern in this patient? Is it A, Cushing syndrome, B, subarachnoid hemorrhage, C, hypercalcemia, or D, spinal cord compression? All right. So, you know, when we look at this question, the patient is 55-year-old male, so he's relatively elderly. He presents with nausea and bilateral flank pain for a few months, and there is a family history of sudden death in his uncle. He's hypertensive, his kidney function is abnormal, and he also has microscopic hematuria. And, you know, in this question, there is an important uh, giveaway, and that is the ultrasound shows multiple kidney cysts in both kidneys. That's an important piece of information. You know, when I was first reading this question, it says bilateral flank pain. You know, I was thinking of, is he having some enlarged prostate and caused you know, like obstructive uropathy. But then when you reach by the, you know, at the end of the stem, actually, it shows uh, that the patient has multiple kidney cysts. And, you know, in this context, when someone has of that age in 50s has bilaterally enlarged kidneys, which are palpable and they have cysts, then that usually points me towards autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease. Now, the question doesn't ask you the diagnosis. It's a two-step question. It asks you which of the following is the greatest concern in this patient. So autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease has some manifestations, which are kidney manifestations. And there are some manifestations which are outside of the kidney, typically called as extra renal manifestations. So here, you know, one of the extra renal manifestations includes cerebral aneurysms. And you know, that's the thing that comes to my mind because they have given a clue here that there is a family history of sudden death in his uncle. And whenever we see an autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, and when we hear from the patient that they have a family history of a person who has polycystic kidney disease and had a, you know, sudden death or a cerebral event, then you have to screen that patient for cerebral aneurysm because they are at very high risk for rupture and catastrophic event, you know, such as subarachnoid hemorrhage. You know, there are other distractors 
Cushing syndrome necessarily does not have any association with ADPKD. You know, hypercalcemia typically is associated with sarcoidosis or, or some paraprotein diseases or some malignancies. And spinal cord compression do not, I don't think that has any association with ADPKDs. So I would be really concerned about a cerebral aneurysm in this patient. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, so that uh, aneurysm could cause B, the subarachnoid hemorrhage. Just I wanted to note for our listeners that some other things associated with ADPKD are hepatic cysts, colonic diverticulae. Triple A's, abdominal aortic aneurysms, and aortic root dilations. In terms of autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, the other thing that step one tries to differentiate it from is the autosomal recessive kind. Do you mind talking a little bit about the difference between the two? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so both are cystic diseases of the kidney. And when we think of autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, It's usually uh, related to mutations PKD1 and PKD2, which are related to polycystin gene. And ADPKD is usually a disease of adults. You know, most of the adults, uh, like typically as in this example, they're in their 50s. You know, and they usually manifest with either, initially they're asymptomatic and usually they manifest with, you know, early onset hypertension and eventually with progressive renal failure. And they usually reach end stage, you know, somewhere in their 50s and 60s. Now, that's usually the story with autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease. You know, but the autosomal recessive disease is actually a disease of children. And it can present sometimes what we call as prenatal. It can be found in the ultrasound or, you know, in the early forms. And usually it's a disease which the recessive form is associated with hepatic fibrosis. So they develop usually complications such as liver fibrosis and portal hypertension, and the mortality is pretty high. So one distinguishing feature is, you know, the age group by itself. Yeah, no, that's a good way to differentiate the two. And lastly, for ADPKD, in terms of medical students, what is kind of the treatment that they should be aware of? You know, so the treatment of ADPKD before we jump into that, I just want to mention a couple of things, you know, why do you develop this cis? It's not entirely clear, but there are a few mechanisms that, you know, patients who have these enlarging cysts, they usually have high levels of vasopressin. These patients also have elevation in their cyclic AMP related to decreased intracellular calcium signaling. There is some evidence that there is increased fluid secretion into these cysts and cell proliferation. So the initial treatment is very standard where you have to control the hypertension aggressively. The interesting thing is that the blood pressure targets in these patients is lower than general population. So here, the blood pressure, we like to keep it close to 110 over 75. We have to, you know, make changes in the diet. Like we advise the patients to restrict the sodium up to two grams a day. And, you know, as I said, these patients have high levels of ADH, uh, which is vasopressin. So we we encourage them to drink a lot of water, usually, you know, up to a gallon so that the ADH can be suppressed. And in some selected cases, you know, we use a V2 receptor antagonist like 12 Apton. Good to know. Okay, so moving on to question three. 45-year-old woman presents to the emergency department with severe right flank pain and hematuria. She's extremely uncomfortable and cannot find a comfortable position on the stretcher. 
She also is reporting some nausea. She has several medical conditions and is currently taking omeprazole, atenolol, topiramate, and bupropion. Which of the following may have contributed to her development of her condition? Is it A, omeprazole, B, atenolol, C, topiramate, or D, bupropion? All right, so let's look at this. So she's a 45-year-old woman who complains of severe right-sided flank pain. So she has a unilateral flank pain and hematuria. They have not given any imaging. You know, typically when we think of flank pain and hematuria, stone disease come to, comes on top of the list. You can have flank pain and hematuria in infection like pilo, but you, usually you can make a question of pilo if there is no fever. I would think that stone is a problem here. And the question is, which of the drugs are associated to her stone disease, I guess? So the first one is omeprazole. Omeprazole is a proton pump inhibitor. You know, proton pump inhibitors are associated with kidney in terms of the interstitial nephritis. Usually it does not have any link to the stone. Atenolol is antihypertensive. It's predominantly excreted by the kidney. So it does not have any uh, association or link to, you know, flank pain or stone disease. Now, topiramate is a medication that commonly used for migraine headaches and, you know, also as an anti-epileptic medication. Now, topiramate is a very uh, unique medication that's linked to the kidney. You know, topiramate actually works very much like acetazolamide. Acetazolamide is a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor. It actually acts on the proximal tubule and, you know, causes bicarbonate urea. And, you know, that potentially can cause stones. Let's keep that aside. Now, the next one more choice was bupropion. Bupropion is typically given for depression and to help with uh, quitting smoking. That I don't think is related to any kidney issue. So I would bet on topiramate as a cause. Yeah, perfect. So the correct answer is C. In regards to nephrolithiasis, are there any other medications that students should be aware of that can predispose the patient? Yeah. You know, I just want to make another point for the students regarding topiramate. You know, topiramate, I said, is a carbon, it it's almost acts like a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor. So it mimics proximal RTA. You know, in proximal RTA, it's a filter problem where you actually end up losing glucose and phosphate and other organic stuff. And when the proximal tubule as such is affected, it it's also called as Fanconi syndrome. Typically, there is damage to the proximal tubule you know, from, say, for example, like multiple myeloma. But, you know, when the proximal tubule, in proximal RTA, you actually end up losing glucose and bicarbonate, but you also lose citrate. And citrate usually prevents stone formation. And that's the reason why proximal RTA is very different from distal RTA. In proximal RTA, usually you don't form stones. But topiramate actually selectively causes bicarbonate urea. It does not cause citrate urea. So that's the reason, you know, it all it behaves like proximal RTA, but it causes stones. That's a unique point about topiramate as well as acetazolamide. And your question was, what are the other predisposing factors for kidney stones? Is that right? Yes, any predisposing factors or medications that you know, are common enough for medical students should be aware of. Yeah, you know, since we're talking about medications, we have to remember acetazolamide, we have to remember topiramate. You know, there are some other medications such as acyclovir, which actually forms crystals and crystal stones and 
There is Indinavir, which is an HIV medication. So we have to remember those for nephrolithiasis. And you know some of the risk factors for stone formation is high sodium intake. You know, high sodium intake is a risk factor because it actually promotes calcium excretion. And that's why, you know, you, you form calcium stones. Hyperuricosuria, if you have high excretion of the uric acid, high excretion of oxalic acid, you can form stones. And as I said, you know, citrate is something which inhibits stone formation. And if you have hypocitraturia, then that's a risk factor as well. You know, the fluid intake is also one of the risk factors, you know. Because ultimately, stone forms when there is supersaturation of the urine with the solutes. And if the urine is concentrated, or if any substance that is potentially lithogenic, it will precipitate. And therefore, you need to, you know, that's why we ask patients, you know, to drink quite a bit of fluid so that to mitigate the stone formation. One other thing, I'm sorry to mention that, you know, Prane, uh, the one other thing that tends to come on exams is, you know, there is a patient who has calcium oxalate stones and do you recommend decreasing the calcium in the diet? The answer is no. Actually, we should not decrease the dietary calcium because calcium is required to bind with the oxalate in the gut so that it's not reabsorbed. So that usually comes up on exams as well. Good to know. Thank you for that uh, teaching point. So moving on to question four. So we have a 17-year-old otherwise healthy male who presents with complaints of red urine. He recently had an upper respiratory infection two days ago. His father is dialysis dependent. There is no family history of hearing loss. On physical exam, he has ankle edema and facial puffiness. His blood pressure is 142 over 78, and his urinalysis reveals 3-plus protein, 16 to 20 RBCs per high-powered field and dysmorphic RBCs. A renal biopsy is done on this patient to confirm his diagnosis. Which of the following would be seen on his renal biopsy? A, a diffuse granular immunoglobulin A deposition in the GBM on immunofluorescence. B, subendothelial immune complex depositions with granular immunofluorescence. C, eosinophilic nodular glomerular sclerosis with mesangial expansion and GBM thickening, or D, segmental sclerosis and hylanosis. Wow, that's a lot of pathology description, of right? It's, it's tough on, on podcast, I guess. It, it is. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, the, the question is, there's a 17-year-old male who, who basically develops red urine, I guess it's hematuria, and he has a upper respiratory tract infection a couple of days ago. So it's fairly closely related. Father is on dialysis. Uh, there's no family history of hearing loss. You know, the hearing loss typically is, is, they're trying to say that it's not Alport syndrome because that's usually associated with hearing loss. Now, on exam, he has ankle edema and facial puffiness. So he looks, his volume overloaded. And his urine here is shows three plus protein, which usually is, as I said, a somewhat nephrotic range protein. But here, the urine sediment is active with a lot of RBCs. And the buzzword here is that there is a dysmorphic RBC. You know, dysmorphic RBC is, whenever we see the word dysmorphic, it's basically representative of a glomerular pathology. So dysmorphic RBCs, when we look under the microscope, they almost look like a Mickey Mouse-shaped RBC. So this, this patient has a glomerular pathology going on. 
this has happened in the setting of a upper respiratory tract infection. You know, when as a nephrologist, when we hear this, you know, respiratory tract infection followed by a glomerulonephritis kind of picture, you know, typically there are a few things that come to your mind. And the top two are either is it a post-trep GN or is it an IgA nephropathy? Now, one of the clues is typically if you get a GN, glomerulonephritis, after a URI, in post-trep, it's usually there's a latent period of few weeks. So patients present with a GN and they'll say that, oh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I had a throat infection. But in IgA nephropathy, we call that synpharyngitic picture, which means that the GN happens while the patient has a URI. So, you know, just that, I think that's, that's the clue here because the respiratory tract infection was just a couple of days ago, right? So it was not two weeks ago or three weeks ago. So this picture is very much suggestive of IgA nephropathy. They're asking the pathological description. The first one actually says diffuse granular immunoglobulin A, which is IgA deposition in the GBM on immunofluorescence. So I think that actually matches with what we are thinking. You know, the first option actually is kind of a giveaway because it says diffuse granular immunoglobulin A deposition. So if you don't know the pathology of other options or other distractors, you can probably get this question right. Now, the second option is subendothelial immune complex deposits with granular immunofluorescence. That usually correlates with uh, membranoproliferative GN, which is not linked to upper respiratory tract infection. The other one is eosinophilic nodular glomerulosclerosis with mesangial expansion and GBM thickening. That's a classic description for the diabetic glomerulosclerosis with Kimmelston-Wilson bodies. And the last option is segmental sclerosis, which kind of is can be seen in pretty much any end-stage kidney, FSGS, for example. So I guess the answer A is the right answer. And as I mentioned, the reason is to remember the URI will happen together, synpharyngetic with IgA nephropathy, and it will happen a couple of weeks later in PSGN. Yes, perfect. Yeah, thank you for that explanation. And thank you for also going through what the other answer choices were pointing towards. All right, and we will stop there. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with some more high-yield learning next time.